open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 41. Jeremiah chapter 41. And uh, tonight we, is the assassination of Gedaliah, which was told to him uh, in chapter 40. But um, he didn't believe it was going to happen, but uh, it takes place here in chapter 41. And in chapter 41, we have the cold-blooded assassination of Gedaliah, along with the Chaldeans and the Jews who were with him. Then Ishmael, he captures the people of the city of Mizpah, intending to take them to the land of the Ammonites. Then they're overtaken by Johanan. And then Johanan, afraid of retaliation by the king of Babylon, because of, his, uh, because of his governor, Gadaliah, had been killed, he plans to escape with the remnant of the people to Egypt. So let's begin in chapter 41, verses 1 through 3. Now it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family and of the officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah. And there they ate bread together in Mizpah. And then Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten men who were with him, they arose and struck Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed them, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Verse 3, Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him, that is, with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldeans who were found there, that is, the men of war. So Ishmael, who'd been one of the king's officers, came, brought ten men with him to eat with Gedaliah. And while they were eating together, this meal, Ishmael and his ten men suddenly jump up, pull out their swords, and murdered Gedaliah in cold blood. Now this was really a deceitful and double-crossing kind of a thing that these men did. It was an unbelievable violation of the hospitality customs of that day. And in Genesis chapter 19, verses 4 through 8, we get an idea of this custom of when somebody came to your house as a guest, you were to protect them all the way. In Genesis 19, 4 through 8, I'll read it to you from the, read it to the New Living Translation. Um, we, can we get some of that feedback gone or whatever is going on there? Let me read it to you. It says, But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came over from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, Where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. So Lot steps outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. And he said, listen, please, my brothers, he begged, do not do such a wicked thing. He says, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you wish. But please leave these men alone, Notice, for they are my guests under my protection. Here's the way it worked. To eat bread with someone in biblical times was an important part of friendship. To eat a meal with somebody was to become one with them and identifying with one another. 
That's why the priests would get upset when Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners because it was a bonding kind of thing. It was a becoming one with those people. To eat with somebody was very symbolic. And we can see it in the Old Testament. To eat a meal, that is to break bread with somebody, meant you were at peace with them, that everything was okay between them. We see that in Genesis chapter 26, verses 28 through 30. Also, eating a meal together, it was a sign of peace. It was a covenant of peace. And it was made at such a meal, it was binding. So there was a sign of peace. It was binding. It means it was a promise there that, that everything was okay. And then a meal was a means of reconciliation. It was a sign that whatever was wrong, whatever was patched up and everything was well. Remember in John chapter 21, when the disciples were fishing and Jesus was on the shore making bread and fish and he told them, come and dine. It was a sign that though they had abandoned him at the cross and, and you know, they just, uh, you know, they, they fled. Jesus was saying, come on, you guys, everything is OK. Come and eat. So when people in the Near East would eat together, they're, they're assuring their friendship and their loyalty to one another. And those who came into the house were responsible to that person's house. They, the people of the house were responsible to protect their guests in their home. And the guests were, ex, were expected to return the gesture, gesture with kindness. Gedaliah, remember, was warned, warned in chapter 40, verses 13 through 16 about an attempted assassination. Here's the warning. Johanan, the other rebel lead and the other rebel leaders came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and they informed him, "Did you know that Baalus, king of Ammon, has sent Ishmael to assassinate you?" But Gedaliah didn't believe them. And later Johanan had a private conversation with Gedaliah and said, "Hey, look. I volunteer myself to kill Ishmael secretly." Johanan asked Gedaliah, "Why should we let him come and murder you?" What will happen then to the Judeans who have returned? Why should the few of us who are still left be scattered and lost? But Gedaliah said to Johanan, I forbid you to do any such thing because you're lying about Ishmael. Gedaliah did not believe the threat that Ishmael was going to kill him. Gedaliah doesn't believe the warning. And he trusted Ishmael. Why? Because they were eating together. Again, which suggested, hey, they've already been friends. So Ishmael used the meal as a trap to catch Gedaliah and his men off guard so that he could kill them. Now, we don't know how many men were with the governor, Gedaliah, at Mizpah at this meal. But those 10 men that came with Ishmael were enough to able, and were able to kill all of those that are there with Gedaliah quickly. Look at verses 4 and 5. And it happened... On the second day after he had killed Gedaliah, when as yet no one knew it, that certain men came from Shechem, uh, from Shiloh, and from Samaria, 80 men with their beards shaved and their clothes torn, having cut themselves with offerings and incense in their hand to bring them to the house of the Lord. The next day, before anyone had heard about Gedaliah's murder, 80 men on their way to Jerusalem, came to Mizpah. And by the way they looked, they were in mourning. They had shaved off their beards, they had torn their clothes, and they cut themselves. Now, this, these were all common uh, mourning practices, you know, signs that they were in mourning. 
uh, especially in the ancient Near East, where these kinds of practices were forbidden by the law. Now, they were probably mourning for the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem or for the disappearance of Judah as, as an independent nation. And these pilgrims came from Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria. All three of those towns were located in Ephraim. And they were towns that earlier had felt the effects of the cruel Assyrian you know, policies of, of, of conquest. And the men were bringing their grain offerings and incense. These were the only kinds of offerings that could be brought. Because you see, the temple had been destroyed. There weren't any places or systems available to sacrifice the animals. So they were probably planning to observe the Feast of the Ingathering, which is also called the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. And then verse 1 says it's the seventh month, which was the time of the autumn festivals. Even though the temple had been destroyed, the spot where the temple once stood was still considered to be holy. And so the Israelites continued going there to worship, even though it was in ruins. Verses 6 and 7. Now Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, went out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he went along. And it happened as he met them that he said to them, Come on, Gedaliah, come, to, come to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. So it was when they came into the midst of the city that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, killed them and cast them into the midst of a pit, he and the men who were with him. So Ishmael was pretending that he was also deeply, you know, uh, in deep mourning and wanted to show them that he was also joining them in their sorrow. So Ishmael lives, leaves Mizpah to meet these 80 men. And he, he was weeping as he was pretending, as he went along pretending to join them in their sorrow. And when he reached them, he said, Oh, come and see what has happened to Gedaliah. But as soon as they were all inside the town, Ishmael and his men killed all but 10 of them. So they, they killed 70 of the 80 men that came and threw their bodies into a cistern. Verse 8. But 10 men were found among them who said to Ishmael, Do not kill us, for we have treasures of wheat, barley, oil, and honey in the field. So he desisted and did not kill them among their brethren. Ten of the men, as I said, saved their lives by offering Ishmael wheat, barley, oil, and honey hidden in the field. And he would exchange those things for their lives. Grain was often stored in cisterns, which were used to hold water. Uh, they were then sealed with plaster and covered over with soil to hide them from thieves. Verse 9. Now the pit into which Ishmael had cast all the dead bodies of the men whom he had slain because of Gedaliah was the same one uh, Asa, the king, had made for fear of Basha, king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. So Ishmael got rid of the 70 bodies by throwing them into a cistern along with Gedaliah. It says that you know, it, it, it was probably dug, this cistern was probably dug by King Asa, uh, for a water reserve as part of his defense against Basha, king of Israel, 300 years earlier. Now, King Basha, he had fortified Ramah to stop anyone from entering or leaving Asa's territory. King Asa made a partnership with Ben-Hadad, who was the king of Aram, who attacked towns in Israel, forcing Basha to leave Ramah. Asa was then... 
able to carry away the stones and the wood from Ramah that Basha had used for his fortification. And he used them to build up Geba and Mizpah. Verse 10. Then Ishmael carried away captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters and all the people who remained in Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, who was the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, carried them away captive and departed to go over to the Ammonites. So Ishmael rounds up all of the people that were left in Mizpah, including the king's daughters, and he took off with them as captives to cross over to the Ammonites. Now, if his reason for killing the 70 men was to keep them from spreading the news about the murder of Gedaliah, along with the Babylonian soldiers, it seems like he would have also killed the pilgrims that were left and all of the people that were left in Mizpah. He might have intended to sell the, but he might have intended to sell the people that he took with him to be slaves or to use them as hostages if the Israelites attacked him. And it's likely that Jeremiah was with the captives since he probably was still in Mizpah when the assassination took place. It tells us in chapter 40, verse 6. Now, verses 11 through 18 covers the rescue of Ishmael's captives. Let's begin with verses 11 and 12. But when Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done... They took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and they found him by the great pool that is in Gibeon. Now, it's not known where Johanan was at the time that Gedaliah was assassinated. It seems like Johanan wasn't very careful about protecting Gedaliah, and he wasn't paying much attention in protecting Gedaliah, knowing, especially knowing that there was a plot to kill him. But when he heard about Ishmael's crimes, he ordered his men to go after Ishmael. And they took Ishmael near the great pool of Gibeon. And this is probably the pool of Gibeon, six miles northwest of Jerusalem, that was originally a cistern used for collecting and storing rainwater. The cistern was 82 feet deep. It had a spiral stairway cut out of stone uh, with 93 steps leading from the, from the top down to the water below. Look at verses 13 and 15, through 15. So it was when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johan and the son of Korea and all the captains of the forces who were with him that they were glad. Then all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johan and the son of Korea. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Johan and with eight men and went to the Ammonites. When Ishmael's captives saw Johanan and the others coming, they were very happy. In order for Ishmael and eight of his men to save themselves, they fled across the Jordan River to Ammon, leaving their hostages free to join Johanan. Two of Ishmael's men must have been killed because he had, remember, he had ten with him uh, that ate with Gedaliah. But neither Baasha nor Ishmael is mentioned again. So again, they, they might have been killed. Verses 16 through 18. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were with him, took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, after he had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, 
the mighty men of war, and the women, and the children, and the eunuchs whom he had brought back from Gibeon. And they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Chimham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt, because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them, because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor in the land. Johanan and his men, along with those that he freed from Ishmael, traveled south toward Egypt to get away from the terrible revenge that they expected from King Nebuchadnezzar for Ishmael and his men killing Gedaliah. They didn't go back to Mizpah. The group included soldiers, women, children, and eunuchs who would have protected the princesses. They stopped at Chimham, which was near Bethlehem. And they fled to Egypt because they were afraid of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And there's nothing here that suggests that they asked God for help or guidance in the decision to go to Egypt. Now to them, they made up their mind. They decided somehow, some way, for whatever reason, that it, would, it's, it seemed right to them to go to Egypt. But we'll see in chapter 42, it confirms that what they were doing wasn't God's will. Nor did they obey God. Now, humanly speaking, going to Egypt made sense. And a lot of times when we you know, look at situations in our life, what to do, where to go, how to do it, you know, we, 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 we look into ourselves, we, we start you know, uh, advising ourselves and and. and we make decisions that aren't necessarily God's will. And again, in our eyes, they seem right. But again, we know that God's ways are not our ways. You know, it's kind of like David in 1 Samuel chapter 27. Remember, he was running from Saul. I mean, he'd been running and running. He says, I'm just barely staying one step ahead of death. And he thought, one of these days, Saul's going to catch me and it's going to be all over. But David kept thinking to himself, in 1 Samuel 27, when he reads, Someday Saul is going to get me. He says, notice, the best thing I can do, notice, that I can do, is to escape to the Philistines. Then Saul will stop hunting for me in Israelite territory, and I will finally be safe. But it says that he looked within his heart. The best thing for me to do is to go to the Philistines. Where he went in particular was Gath. Remember what happened in Gath? That's where he fought Goliath. And he thought if he ran off to, to, to the Philistines, that Saul would stop trying to hunt him down and he would be safe. But again, this was his own thinking, his own idea. And David went to Gath. And David lived in Gath for 16 months. Totally out of the will of God. God never told him to leave Judah. He never told him to go to Gath. But David thought it was the best thing for him to do. But Gath was the enemy's territory. And he took his family there. He got work there. And and he made friends there with the enemy. Totally out of the will of God. Because again, this was what David thought was best for him. The main theme of chapter 40 and verse 4 and chapter 41 is the complete loss of the land. That's what chapter 41 we just as we look at it, it entailed. They 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 lost they they lost the, the the complete loss of the land. They lost it all. 
And since leaving Egypt, the people lived in Israel for over 700 years. And now even the remnant was going to Egypt. Where was God in all of this? Why had God taken them out of their land? Well, the answer is found in understanding that the land wasn't the supreme gift of God at Sinai. The supreme gift of God was His presence. His presence. And wherever the people went, whether it was Babylon or Egypt, God would be found with them. God would be with Jeremiah personally. Back in Jeremiah chapter 1, 19, God told Jeremiah, I will be with you. And God said, I will be with the people and for the people. In Jeremiah chapter 7 and chapter 24 and chapter 30 and chapter 31. And keep in mind, God isn't found in a land. God isn't found in a temple that is a structure. He's not found in a particular geographical location. He's found in your heart. This was the miracle of the Exodus. When the people lost everything that they thought was important, they found God in their hearts. I read a devotional yesterday morning that reminded me of this portion of Jeremiah. And the devotion was titled, Why Did He Do That? And the, 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 the story was, out, was about a man who had a well-established business that was continually growing. And he had a lot of employees. And he was making a lot of money. He had a home that was, that was, was beautiful. It was great. It was, it, was a, it was all you could ask for. He drove a new car and he could afford many more cars if he wanted. He's what we call today a successful businessman. And then all of a sudden he sold his business. Just gave it up. And he found a job working for someone. And people wondered, why in the world would he do that? His business was his own. It was a Christian business. It was Christian owned. And he was giving a lot of money to the church. He was employing a lot of people. So what, what would have prompted him to quit? Well, his reason was very simple. And yet a very important one, but often one that's overlooked. The man came to recognize that the continual demands of his business on his time and his attention were causing him to neglect spiritual things more and more. More than he found, even more worse, worse than that, was he found that the money he was, he was making was starting to have an unhealthy attraction to him. He started getting into his money. And in spite of everything he tried to do to keep up the spiritual quality of his life, it wasn't working. And he could see that if he was going to hold on to heaven, there was only one thing he could do. And he did it. He gave it all up. You think that a Christian usually wouldn't need to give up a legitimate business in order to continue being a Christian. And you see, it, it, what he was doing, what he, his business, employing a bunch of people, giving money to the church, it was, it, it's good in, uh, in itself. But we forget, do we, how much time do we devote to it to where we neglect our relationship with God? You see, there are many things that we need to stop and think about. 
You know, whether the providing of our daily bread and other necessities and luxuries of life, which are so temporal, are they keeping us from taking care of the things that are eternal? Jesus warned about this kind of thing in Matthew 13, 22, when he was talking about sowing the seed. He said, how the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and, become, and we become unfruitful. Paul's in the Philippians 3, 7 through 9. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Notice that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And that was what this man did. He gave it all up. He counted them all as rubbish so that he may hold on to heaven. And maybe tomorrow, you know, before we start, you know, our, our normal day, in life, maybe we can stop and think about whether those things are the object of what I'm striving for. Or are they merely what, you know, somewhat unimportant ways to a far more important goal, which is, again, bringing in the kingdom of God and being a part of the kingdom of God ourselves. And history tells us that the Jews thrived in Babylon and Egypt. And when they were released by King Cyrus of Persia, many of them stayed in Babylon. Genesis 1, uh, 1 through 7 says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. For Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all of his brothers, and all that, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly mightily, and the land was filled with them. You see, the land to the children of Israel at that time remained more important as a gift of God. But belief... And faith are not centered in a physical place or things, but in a person's heart and soul. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot love God in mammon. There's a sacrifice to things if we're going to hang on to heaven. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Remember, it's a heart thing. With all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Again, he's to be found in heart, not in some place, not some location, not some building. He said, Now therefore I pray if I have found grace in your sight. Moses is praying and said, Now show me your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. And Moses said, my presence will go with, or God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. It's all about the presence of God. Because of Israel's stubborn condition, God wouldn't dwell in their midst anymore. But he said an angel would be sent in his place to be with them. 
So God says, I'm not going to, you know, I, I'm not going to dwell in your midst anymore, but I'm going to send an angel to be with you. This was really bad news for Israel. Because not having God's presence was, was bad news. Losing God's presence was a terrible loss, and an angel surely wasn't any compensation or substitute for losing God's presence. But Moses tried to get God's presence back. Moses said to God in Exodus 33, 12, <clears throat> you've been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me who you will send with me. Now, what Moses was saying here, it doesn't contradict what God said about an angel going with the people. It rather said Moses was asking to know just exactly who is this angel. But there was more to the question than just asking, hey, who's this angel that's going to go with us? You know, he was asking more than for his identity. You know, he wanted to, to he, he, he was concerned he was concerned about who this is that you're going to send with me. Now, what Moses says here, it doesn't contradict what God said about an angel going with the people. Like I said, and Moses was asking just exactly who is this angel. But again, more to, there was more to his question than asking for who this angel was. There was a righteous dissatisfaction. He was not happy with that idea. Suggested in Moses' prayer to know who was going with me. See, God knows the heart of men when they pray. And he knows what the heart wants, even though the words might not make it clear. God sees the heart. And, and if only we had a heart like Moses that shows such a holy desire like he did. Moses says, hey, God, I, and I, I, who's going with me? Who is this angel? And you see, God could see through into his heart through that prayer that Moses wanted God to go with him. A lot of people say nice words, but the desires of their heart aren't as nice as their words. Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, we've prophesied in your name. Nice words. We've cast out demons in your name. Nice words. Oh, we've done so many wonders in your name. Nice words. But Jesus' words, hey, I don't know these people. See, it's not the things that we say. It's not the nice words that we say. And then God said to Moses in Exodus 33, 14 and 17, my presence will go with you. And the Lord said to Moses, I also will do this thing that you have spoken for you have found grace in my sight. Though Moses' prayer succeeded in getting God's presence back, through intercessory pray, prayer, Moses got back the greatest blessing they could possibly have. The presence of God. Getting God's presence back was a result of God's grace. And when God told Moses his presence would go with him, he added, for you have found grace in my sight, Moses. The psalmist had the same heart. In Psalm 84, he said, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. 
He didn't say, you know, when he says, oh, how lovely is your tabernacle? He didn't say, oh, I just love the way it's furnished. I just love the way it's built. I just love the architecture. I love the rituals. I love the songs. I, no, he said, I cry out for the living God. When he said, my soul longs, it means he became pale. He became pale. It means when his, when his soul longed for God, it means he yearned for God. He desired God. He said, my heart faints. The word means to waste away. It fails. You see, the psalmist was crying out for the, wasn't crying out for the rituals that were performed in the tabernacle. He wasn't crying out for the songs that were sung in the tabernacle. He wasn't crying out for the furnishings of the tabernacle or the tabernacle itself. He was crying out to be in the conscious living presence of God. The psalmist didn't want things that resembled God or reminded him of God or were substitutes for God. He wanted God. Israel didn't deserve God's presence because of their sin. It was only the grace of God, through God's grace, that they got God's presence back. And God's grace is necessary if we're going to receive and enjoy his blessings. And after God promised his presence would now go with him again, Moses tells God that if his presence doesn't go with him, he doesn't want to go anywhere without God. This was Moses' way of telling God what a high priority Moses puts on God's presence and how much Moses values God's presence. Man, it's a priority that we need to have, that we need to practice in our lives. And if we had this priority for God's presence, we'd be in church every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, every Wednesday night, every opportunity that we could have. We would, and we would eliminate a whole lot of problems. And may we not keep company with anyone or anything that that God doesn't want to be with. And not do those things that would cause God to leave us. Let's live our lives in such a way that we'll always be in his presence. That's what Jesus' negative thing that he had to say about the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, 4, and 5. He said, I have one thing you know, to say negative about you. You've left your first love. You have left your first love. The word left, left means neglect. They didn't actually leave, walk away from God. They were neglecting their relationship with him. He says, and you've, you, you've, you've neglected this relationship between you and I. And then he said, hey, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Go back to that place, he said, where, where you walked away, where, you've neglect, where you neglected me. Go back there, repent, and do the first works. And do again what you were doing when we first began this relationship. Fired up for God, wanting to be with God, wanting to read his word, wanting to pray, wanting that fellowship, wanting to be in his presence. Because again, it's his presence that we should desire not just those things that remind us of God or you know, make us feel warm and fuzzy, but I want to be in the conscious living presence of God. Father, we thank you. 
Lord, for your word. And Father, may we have a heart like Moses, Lord. He wants the presence of God in his life. May we want to be in your presence, God. Not just, again, reminders of who you are, or relics or symbols of who you are. But Lord, may we have and be your presence, be in your presence, Lord. We thank you, Father, that you want to be with us, that you want to walk in our midst, so much so that you sent your Son to live among us, to tabernacle among us, Lord. And Father, may that be our desire tonight, God, that you would would just be among us, God, and that, Father, we would desire that so much, Lord. So, Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your your grace that would do that, your grace that would... God, that you would meet with us, that you'd want to have that company and that fellowship with us, God. And so, Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sunday morning.